Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of our podcast mini-series Getting to Better Together, which is sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership at the University of the Sunshine Coast and supported by Noosa Radio FM 101.3. I'm your host Richard Borden. Before proceeding further, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. What a paradoxical nation we've become. Australia is somewhat of an outlier within the community of industrial nations of the so-called developed world in that we've never really been one, an industrial nation that is. We've never really built our economy on a foundation of manufacturing or technology or even processing industries. Our factories have never been the dominant places of employment for our workforce, for instance, or the major sector as contributor to our, to our exports. Our youth have rarely been attracted to the opportunities in technology and engineering that an industrial economy potentially presents, yet here we are in a high-tech world. Have we missed out? It's as if we've jumped from the primary industries of agriculture and forestry and mining to focus essentially on tertiary or service industries like health and education, tourism, without bothering too much with secondary industries of manufacturing and processing, technology and engineering. The service industries now provide virtually four jobs out of every five, but will that continue into the future? A quick glance at the top 10 exports from primary and secondary industries in this country in comparison to other industrial nations is telling in this regard. USA, for instance, in the top five or six export contributors uh, range from pharmaceuticals, industrial machines, semiconductors, petroleum products, passenger cars, vehicle parts and accessories, electrical apparatus, medical equipment. The only one really of the primary industries in there is crude oil. The United Kingdom is somewhat similar stories. Mechanical machinery, cars, electrical machinery, pharmaceuticals, medical apparatus, aircraft and spacecraft, uh, and again, with oil, crude oil being the only exception. And finally, Canada, a country we like to believe is somewhat similar to us. Number one, machinery, including computers. Number two, vehicles. Then electrical machinery. Once again, mineral fuels and so on. If you look at our top ten, ores, mineral fuels, gems and precious metals, meat, cereals, inorganic chemicals, and so on. Why do we lag so? Is it a matter of lack of technological innovation or of entrepreneurship or of venture capital or even of motivation? Are we too comfortable with the lifestyles that the primary and secondary sectors contribute? And they continue to provide for us. Are we happy with that? Most fundamentally, have our educational institutions at all levels failed to focus sufficiently on science and technology and on engineering and mathematics to encourage our young people to seek opportunities in secondary industries. Why does it even matter? Why should we just keep on keeping on the way we are and let the other industrial nations do all the heavy lifting? To help us work our way through these vital matters, it's my great pleasure to welcome Tony Richardson back to our podcast series to share the knowledge and insights that he's gained through his long experience as an educator here as well as overseas. Welcome back, Tony. Thank you, Richard. Uh, a very, very interesting uh, introduction there. <laughs> Let me start by asking you the question. Does it matter that we're not really an industrialised nation? 
And if it does matter, what are we now doing in education to redress our past omissions? Um, well, I guess to answer that question, I would suggest that first of all, we need to state to ourselves that um, we need to move beyond being an industrialised nation. And the second one with regards to education is that there, there needs to be a greater focus on um, giving students a vision for the future in relation to um, science, technology, engineering, maths, but also too, as we've spoken previously, about the inclusion of the arts. So in terms of motivating young people, where would you start? I think that probably the, the biggest challenge that we have and this is my, my perspective, is that there hasn't been a great deal of government vision. We haven't had very many visionaries in government, I suppose, is the word I'd use, to try and structure a pathway um, for uh, businesses, um, educational institutions, to, to have some sort of direction or focus to move towards when it comes to um, moving towards um, industries that focus on technology. Um, I would suggest that, as you were saying in your introduction, that possibly that we have relied too much on, um, I suppose, the expression Australians, you know, she's right, mate, don't worry about it. Um, unfortunately, that's coming to roost now and that um, there needs to be a greater, greater emphasis by government, first of all, to give people the capacity and provide them with a vision for the future which does incorporate the development of technologies that you spoke about and that that in turn is able to then filter through to businesses and education systems so that people in those organisations have a better future and a better understanding of where we're heading and they can be a part of that as opposed to try and figure it out themselves. Hmm. So someone like uh, Barry Jones of way back when, uh, he had a vision. He had a very clear idea of the role of science and technology and engineering and maths in society. Um, and for a while there, the government seemed indeed to increase motivation and opportunities for young people. But that seems to have dropped off. Yeah. I, again, I, th I think that, that the, the challenge is that is that we, we, we grab onto things. Um, There's a Professor um, Dinham in 2012 made a comment about this idea of cherry picking from other, other nations, other countries, and trying to impact on our education system. And I think that, that the, the challenge that we have is that we, we tend to look too much outwardly and we need to start looking inwardly. And in order to look inwardly, we need to start looking at how we can develop the industries that are necessary for for our you know our children, my children, your children, to, 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 to be able to to move into a world that's changing and is changing beyond the realms of of anyone's beyond the realms of people's understanding. You know, like we in the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, everything was very regimented. I mean, we know that our, our education system is based on industrial model, two hundred years old. You know, it's a linear approach. All of this now is is changing, and all of this is having has is having an impact on industries. And so, how is it? How how can we as a society move ahead and look at where we are going in relation to 
making a better world for ourselves by utilising the skills that we have in this country and being able to give people the vision and the opportunity to move forward with those ideas and concepts. So it's not just a matter of, of changing the school curriculum in terms of greater emphasis on, on the, the biophysical sciences, um, but it's actually changing a whole culture. Yeah, that, that's correct. Um, I've been very fortunate uh, the last couple of days. I, I spoke with a, an educationalist um, who has um, given some uh, presentations in, in Queensland and is someone that's, that's um, known worldwide. And um, we, were, we were talking about these areas. And one of the things that I, I think that um, is this focus on and, and what was brought up was that when you look at, look at technology and you look at how technology is being used, we as a society need to look at it beyond just simply the technological aspect, but rather how, how can this technology be used to our advantage so that we uh, are a part of the development of the technology and not the technology simply is something that we use as a means of bettering ourselves, but, but not moving beyond that. So like, you know, when you talked about using minerals, well, I mean, um, extracting of minerals, we extract minerals from the, from, the, from the land here, from the country, and we export it. And, and that's all we do. I mean, we don't, we don't create something from that apart from the fact we dig it up and send it away. And so when you talk about, you talk about technology, you talk about the curriculum, you talk about subjects, it's more than just simply um, teaching a student what science is, what technology is, what engineering is and what maths is and putting some, you know, a goggle over their face and then looking around and seeing things and that's wonderful. But it's also very, very, being very aware of the um, human side, the, the human elements that are linked to those particular applications. Yes, I, I relate very much. I'm a, I'm a scientist, as you will, re will recall, um, and I did agricultural science at university because I had a passion that related, well, two passions really. One was because I came off the land and I was a farm boy and really wanted to improve the lot of, of my tribe, as it were. Um, but I guess more importantly, at that stage, which was just post-World War II in England, the decision had been made by the British government to become food secure. And the way they said uh, the only way we can do that is through the application of science and technology. So I entered the world of science and technology with this, this vision, exactly as you talk about, that I could see its application and my role in it, which I found extraordinarily motivating. Um, I would temper that by saying that I also studied uh, history and economics while I was um, doing my science degree. And I found that each provided the context for the other. And my concern with STEM, and I'd like you to talk a little bit more about STEM, is that it doesn't make, uh, it doesn't talk explicitly about how that interacts with the humanities, with the arts and, and so on, and economics. Okay. Yeah, it's a good question. I think, I think that, um, you know, based on what I've been reading and been having discussions I've had the last couple of days, I'd say that, that it's not just, not just STEM, but, but 
majority of subjects that um, that we teach in schools um, don't don't connect or link um, our students to the real world. Um, so going so in the context of this, and I think it's a it's a, probably a good analogy is that when you buy. My understanding is there's a, there's a bloke called Ray Kurzweil, and he reckons that by 20, I think it's 20, 2030, um, computers will have you know, the same capacity to think as us. And by 2035, they'll have a greater capacity to think than us. Well, if that's the case, then that means that by 2035, if it, if it happens to be, then you and, I, you and I may never have to actually have to think for ourselves again because a computer can do it for us. But the challenge becomes is that does that computer or that technology or that artificial intelligence have some human element to it? Does it reflect something that incorporates what we are as a human entity? And that comes from what you say, you know, the, the humanities and the arts, etc. So it's about being able to say to the person who is designing whatever it might be, hey, look, you might be designing technology and you might be designing something which is really useful, but, but don't forget that you're interacting with a human being and never forget that. And how do we incorporate that within the context of what we're doing and how we're doing it to ensure that there is an overall capacity? So like, you know, for example, uh, one of the, you know, those driverless, driverless cars, I think one of the challenges they've got there is what is the you know does the car if the car has a pedestrian walk in front of it, does it not hit the pedestrian to not injure the driver, or does it hit the pedestrian so that the driver's not injured? Like you know, they're the dilemmas that have to be addressed in relation to those particular aspects of the human context. I remember many years ago someone who was in artificial intelligence uh, telling me that it would never become sentient, it would never become human-like until it was able to laugh at one of his jokes. <laughs> I thought, actually, that sums it up quite well. Um, the, the issue of, of uh, STEM itself, um, which is now becoming a, a fairly well-known acronym of S of Science, Technology, Engineering and Mathematics, where did that sort of thrust originate? Did that just suddenly come out of nowhere or did, was there a motivation for it? Oh. I'd suggest that what it's come from is a is a a focus on America and places like that with technology and that and, the, and that emphasis on trying to get a greater amount of people involved in those particular areas because the belief is that by pursuing those areas there is the capacity for countries to to grow economically, um, and I would suggest that. Um, you know, based on Denim's what Denim, Denim said, that what what we tend to do is we tend to cherry pick, and that we you know we've got oh well, this is a good idea in, in with STEM. Well, let's let's start using STEM and let's start making it something of interest and making it something that people want to address and want to follow. But again, as I say, I mean ultimately it comes down to how does that then what is the domino effect? How does that then equate within society, and how does that then link back to a vision? that a government has for society with the application of STEM. Where is that going to take us? Uh, reading the literature, some of the claims for STEM are, uh, are unusual uh, from my perspective. Uh, things like through STEM, it is claimed, students develop key skills, including problem solving, 
creativity, teamwork, independent thinking, initiative. They're not the sort of things that I would normally associate with words like science, technology, engineering, and maths. So what's the basis of a claim like that? I think that, that those particular, um, that STEM does allow for those sorts of things to happen, that it does allow for the areas of collaboration and those sorts of areas, because what, what you do is that the, you, know, you structure what you're doing to incorporate elements of, um, uh, you know, of group work or you incorporate um, elements that allow people to explore ideas. I mean, like my understanding was that with respect to, say, for example, Apollo 13, when those astronauts had that challenge in space and they had difficulties, it wasn't just one engineer that thought about the solution. My understanding is that what NASA did was they got their best engineers, they put them all in one room, and they said to them, look, you know, you've got 24 hours or 48 hours to find a solution to this problem. If you can't find a solution, well, then these guys are dead. So I'm sure that, that what you're talking about took place within that room. But, I'm, but I would suggest that that in any subject area that you, you look at, that those particular skills could be applied. Well, I guess that's exactly my point, that in terms of designing curriculum, there is a danger, it seems to me, that, that the, the four disciplines are taken as four disciplines, and that rather than seeing this uh, as a wonderful challenge to actually create, if you like, cross-disciplinary education, um, that we will slip back into the way it has always been. It's easier to teach. If I'm a science teacher, I see science. Um, if I'm a math teacher, I teach maths. Uh, if I'm teaching humanities or history, I teach those. But I, I'm not quite sure in a classroom how that would actually be achieved in terms of creating exactly those conditions of being working in groups and taking initiative and so on. Well, it depends on the on the task. I, um, many years ago, I um, was fortunate enough to have gone to the States and um, I, I went to Stanford University and from there I went to Minnesota and I spoke to a, um, a professor of education um, at Minnesota um, University and they were talking, this is back in like 2007, and they were talking about these concepts of, of um, uh, producing projects, exactly what you're talking about, um, with students in schools, um, whereby it was a um, cross-pollination of subject areas. So you might have, for argument's sake, English and geography and chemistry and a bit of history, etc. And what it was about was that the school, with regards to the assessment task, would focus on an assessment task that was real, real world, real life. And the example that this person gave to me was um, looking at trying to create the capacity or technology to put a, a person on Mars and then put that to the students. Um, and it, re it would require more than just simply, you know, doing some maths. It would, you know, report writing, chemistry, like a lot of, a lot of factors. And then once that had been done, it would be marked, but then it would be sent off to NASA. It would be sent off to the European Space Administration. At that time, it would have been sent off to the Russian people too, you know, to give them some in insight into how these young people thought and the possibility of, something that they had thought about might be something that these people hadn't thought about. So it creates a very positive link between what they had done and what the, um, what the outcome would be. That was 2007. What happened? Yeah. 
um, I don't know. I, I lost contact with the um, with the lady, and obviously, I would say that um, that um, based on where we are at the moment, um, from that that you know that hasn't been something which has been pursued. Um, but to me, I think it's that's a it's a very good idea. I mean, like you you want to try and the the problem that I guess with curriculum and those sorts of things in relation to STEM or anything is that you want to try and get some connectedness between what the student is doing and what the outcome is for the student in relation to their place in the world. Um, it's a bigger picture than just simply teaching someone, you know, STEM. And I think both you and I both agree on that, you know. Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, I see there are some uh, attempts to put an A in STEM to make it STEAM, where A stands for the arts. I would be greatly in favour of that in the context of everything we've just been saying. But that seems to me the education of the whole person rather than simply focusing in on what essentially are, are instrumental ways of knowing. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, like, again, I think that what we, you know, what we tend to do in schools um, is that we tend to put people in boxes. So, you know, you're a, you're a humanities person, you know, you don't like maths, you don't like science, you don't like chemistry, or you're a science person, but unfortunately, you know, you're a science person, you don't like English. Um, you know, to have people that, that are able to move between both areas, I, I think is not something which is quite common. So, like, in your case, I'd say, suggest that someone that, that, under, that, you know, does the sciences and then has an interest in history is not a commonality that people would normally come across. So I think that, that for some reason, as you said, you know, for some reason you, you, you gain an interest or, an, or uh, gain an interest in this particular aspect of history. And, and why, I mean, like, that's the thing, like, you know, creativity, you, you, you have to be creative in order to be able to think of something. So, like, you know, creativity is something which can be, in, can be spontaneous or it can be something that that is developed over a period of time. But you need to be able to have that spark, that creative desire to be able to change something in order to be able to produce something that can then create that change. People people just don't... I, I, I'm assuming that people just don't make change for the sake of change, you know what I mean? It's done for a reason. And there are reasons behind it. I think one of the one of the reasons for it is is that people have this sense of creativity. Um, you know, like if we go back to the Stone Age, the person that made the wheel, like, like why did they make the wheel? Like, what's the reason behind making the wheel? There must have been some some creative background information about that for that person to make them realise that having a wheel would do all of this sort of stuff. But unless they knew what stuff it was, they would never have created the wheel in the first place, would they? <laughs> that would be an interesting discussion for the next time, Tony, for the next time. I, again, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for being such a, a willing conversationalist and with such insights and experience. Okay, no worries. Thanks for your time. And thank everyone for listening, and I look forward to our next episode. Until then, goodbye.